Freedom of speech is one of the fundamental tenets of a liberal democracy. And yet, today, threats to freedom of speech don't so much come from authoritarians abroad as they do from critics within our own democracy. The idea of no-platforming those you disagree with or cancelling them has taken root in all forms of public debate and increasingly so in science. But as scientists know, their work is an ongoing process of finding truth where what each generation takes as given may well be overturned as we discover more through research in the future. Experts should surely welcome disagreement because that diversity of thought allows hypotheses to be tested, proven, disproven and so on. But concerningly, the word science has been more interpreted today as the truth itself, which creates an orthodoxy where diversity doesn't seem to be welcomed. The Spectator is deeply concerned with this illiberal trend. So today we will be looking into the question of free speech within science, questioning where, along the way, we lost sight of what science means, if indeed we have. Or is it the case that, in an age where misinformation travels at lightning speed via the internet, there does need to be greater restrictions on freedom of speech in science so as to snuff out conspiracy theories and dangerous views? I'm Cindy Yu, Assistant Editor at The Spectator magazine. I'm joined today by three esteemed guests to discuss these difficult questions. Jay Patacharya is Professor of Health Policy at Stanford University and one of the most vocal scientific voices opposing lockdown during the pandemic. David Willits, Baron Willits, is formerly a science minister and now sits on the board of a number of scientific bodies, including the UK Space Agency and is a fellow at the Royal Society. And finally, we have Dr. Giselle Baker, who trained in biometry and epidemiology and is now the vice president of global scientific engagement at tobacco company Philip Morris International, which is kindly sponsoring this podcast. So, Jay, let me come to you first. Do you think that science is a free and open discipline today? And if not, where do you think we went wrong? Well, I think I'm, the ideal is that science is free and open, but it's, um, I think that there's a, a real tension with public health and science. The ethical norms of free discussion in science, which absolutely, as you put it, Cindy, require that scientists be able to think freely, to speak freely, to question ideas freely, to advance. That ethical norm, I think, is at odds with the public health norm, which is that the message needs to be controlled that the message needs to be simple. And I think, um, to me, the key thing that navigates this dichotomy in ethical norms is that the scientific basis for the, the messaging in public health has to be solid. If you have a new disease, for instance, and scientists disagree, public health should not use its ethical norm to mislead the public into thinking that there is a scientific consensus when there is not one. I think that's primarily uh, my view of what went wrong during the pandemic. I mean, I think that there are many other areas of science where similar kinds of this dichotomy, this tension exists. But certainly during the pandemic, that was, I think, the key problem. Mm. And, and this conversation is going to be much more wide ranging than just about the pandemic as well. But Jay, you make a very good point there. I mean, David, you've held senior positions across British science. You've had a first hand look at the entire scientific process from education, research, publication, policy, all sorts of areas. Do you agree that there is this tendency to be more authoritarian, perhaps putting it a bit strongly, but to be homogenised? in public health and in science in general? Well, I think there certainly are examples when the science community is not open to an alternative but legitimate scientific view. Alice Drager's wonderful book, Galileo's Middle Finger, is a story, well, several stories of examples of that. A scientific consensus so strong that people who had legitimate doubts that proved to be correct were kind of suppressed. Mm -hmm. The only qualification I would add is that part of 
science is the autonomy for a discipline of being able to police its own boundaries as what constitutes membership of a discipline. So as we have a great American visitor with us, we should remember that the Scopes trial in Tennessee was about saying you can't teach creationism as part of science. It was actually about excluding something from the curriculum as, as science. It re- in other words, he was claiming the right to police the borders of science. Similarly, I had a conversation with an academic in the Middle East who had, for a time, he got eventually reinstated, lost his job at the university because he refused to accept that Islamic doctrine on the origins of the world should be taught as part of physics. And actually, for him, academic freedom meant the right of physicists to define the boundaries of physics and to refuse to teach stuff that was not they regard as physics. So the one complicating factor in science is part of scientific autonomy is policing the boundaries what of counts discipline. as science in and that in turn that power that autonomy within science can be exploited some people can say well that's not real science so it can't count as science we're not going to let it in but we should remember that that is there is a legitimate role for scientists in defining their disciplines mm, that's very interesting i mean giselle what do you think about the wider question but also specifically about what david has just said i mean i would think that the difference between science and religion is that testable hypotheses, you know, experimentation, theory, mathematics, which faith doesn't necessarily have. I mean, Giselle. Exactly. I think when you look at science, science is about observing something, setting a hypothesis, testing it, analyzing the data. But I think a really key piece of the scientific process is getting it wrong, being able to have prove yourself wrong owning it up and reiterating, coming up with a new hypothesis and not considering proving yourself wrong as a failure, but really a success. I'm a statistician and I worked in the pharmaceutical industry for a long time and I always really made the hair on the back of my neck stand up when somebody would call a study that proved a drug doesn't work a failed study. I was like, oh my gosh, the only thing that is a failed study is a study that lets you wonder at the end of whether or not the drug works or doesn't work. An equivocal study is a failed study, but a study that proves something wrong is a successful study. And Giselle, PMI straddles an interesting, some might say difficult position here, I think. I mean, you're trying to tell the world that you're working towards a so-called smoke-free future, that your heated tobacco products and vapes are much safer than cigarettes, of which you still sell hundreds of billions of units each year. But you're meeting pushback from some in the scientific community who question your conclusion. So That's your interest in having this discussion on scientific freedom, isn't that right? Well, exactly. And I think one of the things comes from what is the company trying to do and whether you agree with where the company's going. But there's a second piece of the puzzle, which is what does the science say? Which are two related, and don't get me wrong, importantly interlinked objectives. But one is what does the science say on the products? And then the second one is holding the company accountable for really driving in the direction of the science. But preventing the science, because you don't believe that the company will actually make the transformation, actually kind of stop science from progressing. Right. So you're saying to your critics, don't judge us by what we've done in the past. Look at our products now. Research shows that they are safe or whatever it is uh, that the conclusions are. So don't judge us by our history. And hold us to where we're setting our objectives for the future. Look at what we're saying and look at our transformation and the data to see are we actually progressing in the direction of the science. And Jay, you've also had runnings with the scientific orthodoxy, I think it's fair to say. Tell us about your experience during the pandemic. 
So uh, in October 2020, I wrote a document called The Great Barrington Declaration with Martin Kuldorf and Sinatra Gupta, Martin of Harvard University and Oxford and Sinatra Gupta of Oxford University. The document called for a uh, lifting of lockdowns and better focus protection of vulnerable older people. I mean, the, the scientific community, uh, it was actually, I would say, in one sense, a very positive reaction. Tens of thousands of scientists signed it agreed that the lockdowns were causing tremendous harm to children, uh, to vulnerable people in the working class. On the other hand, the, the leaders of the scientific community in the relevant area, people like Francis Collins or Tony, uh, who was the head of the National Institute of Health, Tony Fauci, Jeremy Farrar in the UK, they reacted essentially by excommunicating us. Francis Collins wrote an email to Tony Fauci calling me, Martin, and, and Sinatra fringe epidemiologists, basically ad hominem slur, something that doesn't belong in science. And then calling for a devastating takedown. There were a number of hit pieces in uh, popular press, mischaracterizing our view, saying that we wanted to let the virus rip and we were calling for better protection of vulnerable older people. There were uh, death threats against me. There were uh, just vicious attacks, even on campus, to try to get me to stop talking. There were lies about the funding. I have taken zero dollars for my COVID-related work in order to, again, to discredit at uh, me and the, the other people who signed the declaration, people who signed the declaration lost their jobs. Some of them lost grant opportunities. It was an absolute all hands on deck attack by the leaders of the scientific community to suppress the discussion of the Great Barrington Declaration and the call for focus protection, the call for lifting of lockdowns, essentially even without data. And, you know, if you look back on whether we were right, well, you just have to look to Sweden and see, well, you know, Without the lockdowns, with better focus protection, they did much better than the UK, much better than the US. Florida, with which many, many fewer restrictions uh, lifted almost immediately after they were imposed compared to California, Florida has lower all-cause excess deaths than California. The scientific community, generally, I think, would have supported it. We would have won that debate had that debate been allowed to happen. But leaders of the scientific community decided that the, the debate was too dangerous to have because they were so certain that they were correct. When in fact they were wrong, and now many children are paying the harms from that with lost uh, learning. There's tremendous levels of depression and anxiety in the population at large, again from isolation from the lockdowns. Uh, there are delays in cancer screening that have now caused like, a huge crisis in cancer. There's, the, of course, the economic hangover. The consequences of the scientific leadership not printing debate could not be more for the population at large. Mm. David, Jay used an interesting word that he, he used the word fringe, that they were dubbed as fringe. You know, in your previous answer, you talked about the boundaries of where science lies. I mean, someone also has to decide who's fringe and who's mm. not, right? So that process in itself could be compromised. Yeah, and as I said, that is one of the tricky issues. It seems to me that what we're describing about is a totally legitimate debate in public health about the costs and benefits of various policy options and the impact on people of different ages, including, as we're increasingly aware, the impact of COVID lockdown on, on younger people. So it seems to me an absolutely legitimate intervention in the debate. But you can have a kind of, through social media nowadays, you can find that people and I'm sorry to go back to it, but that is because still I think the best book about it is Alex Drager's book, where you can get a sense of almost popular hysteria suppressing a particular view, which is a legitimate scientific view. It may or may not be correct, but it's certainly a legitimate scientific view based on evidence arguing a proposition. And that has to be part of science. Mm. I mean, Giselle, the problem for people who are on social media, journalists or other people uh, who are not scientists, is that we don't 
know who to believe, right? I mean, especially in the midst of a pandemic or, or some kind of scientific crisis. So is there a shorthand for knowing who is credible, who is trustworthy? Is it the, the esteemed halls of Harvard and Oxford? And are those what we should be looking at? But like, so as, I guess my question is, why should we trust anyone? <laughs> well, I think the one thing that you started your conversation on was really going at science as fact. Science is based on what we know today and will evolve based on what we learn tomorrow. So if we think that we can tell everybody what tomorrow will look like based on what I know today, the only thing I can guarantee is we'll be wrong. That's the only scientific truth I think that will hold undyingly. So the ability to discern what's right and wrong is going to be difficult, especially in the social media era where things are made to look more real than they actually are. And we are a society and as a, I guess more as a species, we're prone to not really process disconcordant information. So if I believe A, then when I hear a different point of view, I'm more challenged to prove it wrong than to consider whether it's right. Well, scientific advice and scientific view changes. I was thinking, uh, walking over here, our two kids were born about 30 years ago. In between the birth of our first baby and our second baby, the public health advice about whether the baby should sleep on her back or his front changed. And we were told by the health visitor the opposite for baby number two than we got for baby number one. So these things do change. I think the test, though, as to whether this is more than just chat and social media campaigns is a really boring old-fashioned one, which is things like, is it in a peer-reviewed journal? And if it's in a peer-reviewed journal, you expect standards to be maintained. And that's why this responsibility is equally peer-reviewed journals need to be open to rival legitimate scientific views about issues such as consequences of lockdown during COVID. Mm, Jay? I mean, I think this conversation is so interesting because it does highlight a real tension because I, I really firmly believe that there is a legitimate role for public health to set the boundaries for what, so the public is informed by the best scientific evidence at the time regarding health. I don't oppose that. The problem, I think, is that when public health oversteps that bound, latches itself on to a, a notion of scientific consensus that doesn't actually exist, and then it actually actively tries to create an illusion of consensus by marginalizing scientists who disagree, I really like the reference to that book about Galileo, uh, the, the, you know, Galileo's middle finger. I mean, I think that kind of idea is exactly what motivates so many people to enter science. This idea that you can, through uh, hard work and ingenuity, you can overturn how people think about some fundamental things or the, the way the world works. That's kind of the romance of science, right? And a scientific community that doesn't allow that will be a stifled, shrunken scientific community. At the same time, I also agree that there are bounds, right? So I can tell you what I think is good science in my area. People disagree with me pretty fundamentally often, even within my area. But I think that's part of the interesting things about science. If we're only just talking about does gravity pull down, I mean, it's going to be a very boring conversation, right? Everyone's going to, going to agree. The interesting parts of science happen where we don't know, we don't have the answers. And of course, people may even disagree about whether we do or don't know or to have the answers. So there is that. At the same time, there, there has to be, you know, public health has to give some message the ethical obligation of public health is to give the best scientific evidence that is known at the time and convey uncertainty adequately and honestly when real uncertainty exists. 
that is the tension. I, I really am enjoying this conversation for just to think about that tension. Can I just add, I think there is a problem of cancel culture, and we're seeing examples of it, sadly, within the science community. There are other ways in which we don't get as much openness and trustworthy research as we need in science, and there are two other pressures. There's, there's a research integrity problem where now the rewards for an exciting finding are so great that there are increasing numbers of examples of papers, for example, getting into peer-reviewed journals, claiming to have a finding, which is subsequently revealed to be based on false interpretations, sometimes false data, constructed data, and ChatGPT and everything is going to make this harder. We've now got such strong incentives on scientists to get good results mm. that there is an active problem of misbehaviour. The other thing is that absolutely we need negatives as well as positives. But I tell you, a story that I have investigated this part of the gene and established it doesn't actually cause breast cancer is not a finding that is going to get you in the Daily Mail. And the negative results, the career costs of just getting negative results... When I was... One of my private sectors, when I was the science minister, was someone who had done her doctorate at Cambridge, and I said, you didn't carry on your career as a, in biology. She said, yes, because the bit of DNA I studied, I hadn't got a publication at the end of it because it didn't have a link to the disease I was investigating, so I hadn't got a result. Wow. So in other words, there are other pressures within the science community, I think as intense as the cancel culture pressure, which mean that that idea of an open exchange of this works, that doesn't work, is increasingly hard to achieve. I mean, Giselle, that's your point about a failed study, right? It's not a failed yeah, study if you exactly. learn something from it at the end of it. Well, and when I was in, working in pharma, there was a pharma company that actually created a department called the Failure Department. <laughs> um, and their job was really to look at failures to figure out what was causing the failure and how to transform it from a failure to a success. Yep. And some of the blockbuster drugs of the early 2000s actually came from failed studies and failed drugs of the 1990s. Yeah, and if, if I may say so, sitting here in The Spectator... It is such a contrast with politics because newspaper, when it comes to politics, newspapers are journals of failed results. So I always say to my science friends, the incentives and the reporting of politics and science are the opposite. The only things you're interested in in politics is where things haven't worked, they've failed. You're just useful policy achieves some results is not a story. In science, the only things that are reported are the successes, the failures that are ignored. And if you had a little bit more of the science reporting in politics, a little bit more of the politics reporting in science, it might be better for both. So would you a job swap between the yeah, exactly. yeah. and science you, the, you don't have a journal of negative results in science but every day's papers feels like a general negative results in politics. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to jump in on the on the um, the kinds of systems that we have in science that I think lead to the the kind of uh, stilted scientific discussion we have. We've already heard a couple of them that I think are really important. I think this punishment of negative results, I mean, basically, if you have a negative result, you're not going to get in. Basically, no reward whatsoever for replication studies, right? So if you are checking the results of somebody else, which is absolutely necessary in science, there's no, there's almost no career reward for it. Before the pandemic, I also worked on measuring the incentives that people have to work on new ideas in science. A lot of the grant earning capacity basically focuses on relatively safe studies so that the grant organizations can go tell the public, oh, look, we had this success. So the contrast I would make is with, for instance, venture capital. In I live in Silicon Valley. In Silicon Valley, 
a venture capital firm will fund a, you know, a, a large number of new enterprises with the idea that most of them will fail. If they get one Google out of 35 companies, startups they fund, that's a success for them. In science funding, most of the science funding is by measure that I had, the National Institute of Health, for instance, funds ideas that are about eight or nine years old. That's the modal idea funded by the National Institute of Health in a, in a paper I wrote in the, for the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And that's new. That In three decades ago, that wasn't the case. Also, the scientific workforce has aged very rapidly so that the people who control where the resources go are much older than they once were. Uh, I think the median age of a new large grant awarded by the National Institute of Health, for instance, now it, the person is in their 40s for their first large grant, whereas uh, in the 1980s, they were in their early 30s. So we've become much more conservative as a scientific uh, community in supporting new ideas, supporting the kinds, and especially in supporting young people. It is very difficult for a young person to, you know, like once upon a time, you could get a PhD, then get a job as an assistant professor. Now it's much more difficult to do that. In biomedical sciences, you have postdoc one, postdoc two, postdoc three, a many, many, many year process. And if any of those scientific uh, investigations you do fail, well, you're not going to get a, a research position at a university. I think there are a lot of structural problems that lead to the kinds of stultification of scientific uh, progress that we've seen. I very much agree with that point. And indeed, there's an increasingly lively debate about meta-science, how we do science. And this ageing of the winners of grants is a big issue. One of the indicators I really tracked when I was a science minister was to make sure that we continued in the UK to see people in their 30s winning principal investigator awards. And actually, you know, that was part of our comparative advantage. And I believe it still is as a place where people came to do science because younger people who are often the ones who have the new model, the new way of thinking, come along and had that opportunity. Max Planck famously observed, again, this is the issue where the scientists really changed their mind. Max Planck famously observed on one occasion, science advances one funeral at a time. By which he meant even scientists don't actually change their view. There were probably <laughs> there were probably astronomers who believed in the Ptolemaic system, and it didn't matter what Copernicus had written. They'd been trained on the on the Ptolemaic system, and Copernicus wasn't getting them to change their mind. Eventually, new people were trained in the Copernicus model and replaced them. So there is even in science, it is hard above a certain age to get people to change their mind. Well, in the last few minutes of this podcast then, can I get you guys to have a chat about what we can do about this? In some ways, I find it reassuring that you don't think it's all cancel culture that we're seeing in other areas of modern life because in some ways, you know, the, 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 the age problem, the funding problem seems maybe easier to tackle because at least we know what the problem is and it's not just a psychological need to flock to the majority. Yet, it's also much more structural from the sounds of things. Maybe, Giselle, you can say, like, what do you think is the way to open up the diversity so that people can be a bit more committed to the ideals of science? Well, I mean, I think it's there in the process. I think what needs to be opened is more the openness of how do you progress science, which is not through success always, that science can be progressed through success and failure. And therefore, you need really to have conversations. Deciding that somebody's science isn't the other side of a debate or that a scientific debate can be one side of a conversation is the complete opposite of debate. So bringing people together to drive consensus, but to come up with doing, ideas. Who's doing the bringing together? Is it government? Is it scientific leaders, as Jay said, who let him down so much during the pandemic? Who should be doing that kind of thing? I think it has to be the scientific 
community as a whole is to not really allow this polarization of science, but to really drive science forward. So I think it's going to be in the scientists themselves that drive it forward than somebody forcing them to drive it forward. Government or... Exactly. Whatever the other entities would be. It could be society. It could be governments. It could be even grant awardees. Who's awarding the grant and what research area is of interest to them? But I think the scientific community has to really band together to prevent the exclusion of science from the debate. I think there's a lot of things you can do, but I think the central problem is concentration of decision-making within a relatively small number of people about who gets to do science and what kind of science they get to do. So for instance, like the NIH coordinates very closely with the Gates Foundation, which coordinates very closely with the Wellcome Trust. And so you get one set of scientists that get all of the basic funding, as if you basically said, okay, uh, these, these new upstarts are saying this continental drift is the way that geological time moves and your major career based on a fixed earth. And you get to decide where all the money goes, which all the, all the young scientists don't get anything. That's essentially what we have. We have this concentrated power within a small number of organizations. And the way you get debate is by making sure that there's a diversity of funding sources for diverse sets of views in science. And then people will just argue with each other. It'll be much, much more... I mean, it'll be a little unsettling because we won't have a single source of truth. But of course, we never really had one, did we? Mm. Well, David, you'll answer that question as well, please. But also, we're recording this during the COVID inquiry is taking evidence. I mean, maybe that should be one of the conclusions from the inquiry then to increase and diversify funding rather than talking about who swore at who in WhatsApp conversations. Yeah, I agree. I think that it would be great if the COVID inquiry digs deeply. And I very much agree with what Jay just said, that... Diversity of funding is key. Diversity of institutions and also institutions that themselves promote debate and dispute within the institution. Because at its best, a powerful institution can be a protection for a range of different views expressed within it. And again, looking back on my regular science meetings, I, I realised that some of the things, for example, the co-funding requirement, increasingly people are saying, we won't fund you on our own but you find someone else to fund alongside. And when Jay describes how these partnerships arrive that can impose a kind of consensus view, I think sometimes the co-funding requirement can be one of the tools. So backing funding where you just have institutions, individual players, distinct funders that will just fund something on their own because they think it's worth doing. Exactly. I think when you look at the funding mechanism, it drives things in the the direction of consensus versus debate. Giselle Baker, Jay Bhattacharya and David Willits, thank you so much for joining me.